So Psalm 22, beginning at the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no help. Sorry, there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down into the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Uh, So page 1087, 
John 19, starting at verse 16. John 19, starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to, be, to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took Jesus, took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had prepared and fast, sorry, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that, the, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her to his home. Thanks, Michael, for reading. Good evening, everyone. You'd have to be an idiot to do something as ridiculous as choose to follow Jesus. So. It's a funny thing maybe to hear, isn't it, on a Sunday night in a church service. But I guess it's probably a message that lots of us hear loud and clear Monday to Friday. Maybe in that sarcastic comment or that rolling of the eyes from work colleagues. Maybe in, in the sneering at school or at college. Um, from other students, maybe from other teachers you believe, what? Really? Come on. It's a message that rings out loud and clear, doesn't it? In the media, too, on TV, where if Christians are portrayed, it's at best as a bit of a joke, and at worst as bigoted and intolerant. Down the pub, on the sports pitch, in many of our workplaces, we get the message, don't we? Jesus is pathetic and unwelcome. Following him, something well, you'd have to be a loser to want to do. Which, of course, is nothing at all to what so many of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world face every day. A recent report, I don't know if you saw it, by the Bishop of Truro, tells of 245 million 
Christians across the world experiencing the daily reality of severe persecution. Churches bombed. Christians attacked or excluded from education or employment or community life, all but driven out of many countries. Hearing the message day after day, we do not want Jesus here or the pathetic, deluded people who are stupid enough to follow him. And praise God, that's not our experience in Cambridge. But though it's quieter, we still hear the same message, don't we? Hear what the people around us every day think of Jesus. And it can make us doubtful and fearful. Robbers of confidence keep our heads down and our mouths closed. The Romans used crucifixion to give the same kind of message. Anyone who dared stand up to them was strung up in torment to die. So everyone around would see and get the message. This is how we crush our enemies. Now don't be stupid enough to try and follow them. And in our passage tonight, that's what we see happening to Jesus. As verse 16 the Roman soldiers, with ruthless efficiency, take charge. And Jesus looks finished, beaten. As verse 17, he staggers through the streets, heavy wooden crossbeam across a back already torn to shreds from the whipping. As the nails are hammered in and he's hoisted up, verse 18, just one of three pathetic-looking criminals, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. The whole scene seems to be screaming at us, get the message, this Jesus is a loser, he's a joke. And you'd have to be an idiot to stake your life on him. Only I think John's telling us, take another look. And he's doing it, I think, a bit like a filmmaker with a powerful zoom lens because in our passage he's drawing our attention to three little details easy to miss but details that tell us what's really happening here as Jesus suffers and dies that ring out with a different message about who Jesus really is and why he's worth following worth staking everything on whatever it might cost you so let's look at them together and let's see first the king proclaimed. Earlier in chapter 19, we've seen Pilate, the Roman governor, being coerced and manipulated by the Jewish, Roman, the Jewish religious leaders to have Jesus executed. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He wants no part of it. But they back him into a corner. Look back at verse 12. They say, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Jesus is a dangerous rebel, they're telling him, an enemy of the empire. You're not going to take his side, are you, Pilate? What would your boss think of that? And so at last, Pilate caves. He gives them what they want. And those Jewish Jewish leaders, they go away 
thinking they've won. Only Pilate isn't someone who likes being pushed around. And so as he has Jesus crucified for them, he gets his own back. Verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That notice is aimed straight at those Jewish leaders, designed to rub their noses in it and show who's really in charge. See this man, it's saying, see him helpless and bloody and utterly defeated. This is their king, the Jews' mighty king. And to give his sign maximum impact, what does Pilate do? He makes sure it's written so that everyone can read it. Verse 20, in Aramaic, that's the language of the Jews. Latin, the language of the Romans. And Greek, the language of the wider known world. Pilate doesn't want anyone to miss this. He wants it proclaimed to the entire world. Here's the king of these Jews, a pathetic broken king of a pathetic conquered people. And so I'm sure Pilate's delighted when, in verse 21, the Jewish priests, they they see it and they rush to protest. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Change the sign, Pilate. He's not our king. He's nothing to do with us. And Pilate's got them, hasn't he? And I imagine he smiles. I think I'll leave it as it is, thank you. What I have written, I have written. It's a brilliant political put-down. I guess those contending in this week's Tory leadership race might have had something to learn from Pilate about how to stick the knife into your opponent for maximum impact. It's a clever move. But it's also a, a cheap and twisted one, isn't it? When you remember, there's a man up there, nailed to that cross, labelled like a piece of meat for Pilate's political advantage. There's Jesus, reduced to a helpless pawn in a sick political game. Only what if he's not? Because look at that sign again, John's telling us, with his zoom lens. Because is it just possible that what he's proclaiming in everyone's language for the whole world to read is the real message of the cross? That this Jesus really is the king, God's promised king, his Messiah, sent, yes, to the Jews, but for the world. Is it possible that the king of the king of every single one of us is hanging there on that Roman cross. Sure, Pilate thinks it's a joke and the Jewish leaders want nothing to do with him. But what if, in God's design, a cheap political squabble is serving his sovereign purpose of announcing his king to the world, proclaiming Jesus even as he dies in agony not as a helpless victim, but as the king so powerful that even those most determined to destroy him 
end up unwittingly declaring who he is. Is that possible? Well, says John, notice something else. As the camera pans down from that sign above the cross to the buzz of activity at the foot of it and see the king sent to suffer. Look at verse 23. When, soldier, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. You see, so complete is Jesus' abject humiliation that the soldiers strip him naked to hang there and die. And then, well, they divvy up his clothes between them. Seems appalling to us, doesn't it? But for a Roman squaddy, well, it's just one of the perks of a crucifixion. You take this, I'll have that. And then they pause as they decide, what do we do with Jesus' underwear? Who's going to have that? Seems a shame to rip it in half. I know, lads, let's roll for it. Let's see who's the lucky one today. It's not going to be him, is it? And so the last tiny shred of Jesus' dignity is callously gambled away. But look again. John whispers in our ear as the dice are rolled. See what's really going on. Verse 24. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. See where John's taking us? To Psalm 22, which we had read earlier in our service. Because despite how it looks, what's happening here is not being determined by a roll of the dice, but by a carefully orchestrated plan. A plan these Roman soldiers, without even realizing it, are serving down to the last little detail. Remember last weekend? The church weekend away was fantastic, wasn't it, for those of us who were able to go. But it didn't happen by accident. Happened, didn't it, because of hours and hours of meticulous planning by Ben and Tarita, thinking through every tiny detail, all laid out, as I guess you have come to expect, in the Christchurch weekend away master spreadsheets. Here's a tiny bit of it. So many small but significant details, all carefully planned and then brought together at just the right time to make the weekend happen. Of course, there were so many things, weren't there, that even Ben and Tarita couldn't plan for, had absolutely no control over, like, I don't know, a little thing like, like the speaker getting sick the night before. They had no control over that. And so I know, of course, it's a ridiculous comparison. But when you think of all Ben and Tarita's planning for that weekend, maybe you catch the tiniest glimpse of the planning for this, the most significant moment in human history. The planning of God himself way back before creation plans for the Father 
to send his beloved son to suffer and die. Plans God then laid out for us a thousand years before it happened. In these words of Psalm 22, let me read you a bit of it again. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has been turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. They're the words of David, God's chosen king, describing the most appalling suffering and rejection, partly worked out in David's own life, but in God's perfect design, pointing forward into the future to this moment, where they're fully and finally fulfilled in the death of the king, Jesus. And God, the perfect planner, he made sure these words were written by David at that moment so that at this moment, we would get the message. This is no awful tragedy. Jesus is no helpless victim. This is where God's plan has been heading all along. Here is God's king, willingly sent to suffer. Here is a king so powerful that even as he hangs naked, appears most helpless, not the slightest thing is out of his control. Even the soldiers who strip him and hammer in the nails are perfectly serving his plan. But what kind of plan would mean that God's king had to suffer so appallingly? We'll keep following the camera and see finally the king pouring out his love. In verse 25, we see there beside the cross with a group of other women, Jesus' mother, Mary, watching her son die. And Jesus, well, through the pain, he looks up and he sees her there. He sees that that as a widow, without him, her eldest son, to provide for her needs, well, now she'll, she'll be left helpless and destitute. And so Jesus, who, from the moment his trial has ended, has been silent, he finally speaks. And in a moment of extraordinary tenderness, he provides for his mum. Turns her to John, his disciple, also standing there. Here's your son. He'll take care of you, mother. And to, to John, here's your mother. I'm trusting you to her, John. It's a beautiful moment. And it pierces the darkness of the crucifixion like a shaft of pure light. A moment 
of costly love. Every agonizing breath costing him deeply as Jesus serves his mother. Everyone else John has shown us has been serving themselves. I wonder if you noticed that. Pilate and the Jewish leaders jostling for power. The soldiers gambling for the biggest share of the loot. All looking out for themselves. But not Jesus. Even as he suffers appallingly, Jesus is serving another. Pouring himself out in love to rescue his mother. And John sees it all. John, who all through his gospel never names himself, refers to himself only as the disciple Jesus loved. And he does it here again. And I wonder if as Jesus pours out his love for his mum, John sees. That's how he loves. That's how this king loves me. Because you know, don't you, that's why Jesus has chosen to experience this agony. Why the world's king has chosen to use his great power like this. In love. Costly love, selflessly poured out to rescue people without him, who without him would be utterly helpless and destitute. Eternally lost in their sin. And I wonder if John sees something of that here and gets the message. Listen to how John later described Jesus' death. It's from his first letter. John says this, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, John says, at the cross an atoning, sacrificial love. Because John has already told us over and over again, this is Passover time. And Jesus is dying here in our place as the perfect Passover sacrifice. The full force of God's just and terrible judgment on our sin, falling on him, so it never need fall on us. That's the plan. And why? Because that's how this king loves. How he loves sinful, undeserving people like you and me. Loves us enough to suffer all this agony to rescue us. This is love. The love this king pours out at the cross. And it's a love that if you stay close to it, it will change you. Because Well, it's a love that forms a new family. That's what's happening here, isn't it? As John gains a new mother, Mary, a new son. And I think that's a picture for us of what Jesus' love does as it touches the lives of, well, naturally self-serving people. Starts to form us into a family, a a church family, where, where little by little, often imperfectly, often getting it wrong, we begin to share with others something of the self-giving love that Jesus has lavished on us in little things. That act of care, that word of encouragement, 
those costly decisions to commit and serve. I wonder, are you seeing that in your life? And it's a love too that will keep turning us outwards, away from our comfort and out towards, well, out towards that sneering colleague, that eye-rolling friend who desperately need to hear of this king and his love. Out and willing to pay whatever it costs us in a world that often won't want to know to help them get the message. I wonder, are you praying for that in your life? And are we trusting as we do so that our life is safe with him? Safe in the pierced hand of a king so powerful who has come in such weakness to love us with a love like this. You'd be crazy not to, wouldn't you? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, our king, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your love poured out like this, paying this price for us. Lord Jesus, keep us near to this love. And would you change us through it, we pray, for your sake. Amen.